0: Hi everybody, it's Steph. I hope you're doing well. I apologize vastly and profusely in advance for this, oh, somewhat lengthy podcast. So, uh, if you could listen to it in one go, I would really appreciate it. This is going to be a uh, a rather challenging exploration of something that I have been working on for the past week or week and a half. So, uh, it's one of the hardest one truths that I've had in this sort of philosophical series, so I hope that it's of some use to you. Um, I extracted the tooth. I hope it's gold. <laughs> um, just before the regular announcements, looking forward to your donations. Thank you so much to the donators from yesterday. Uh, fantastic. Food is back on the table. Uh, the philosopher has his nutrition. Uh, please keep them coming. I really do appreciate it. The symposium, we have reached, I think, halfway or a little bit more to our goal of 15 people for the Freedom in Radio live symposium Illinois, Chicago based on the 25th of August 2007. Please send me an email or drop past the boards under general messages. There is a little poll for Yes, I'll Come, No, I won't for the FDR symposium. So if you could, uh, if we have enough people by the end of the month, I will be more than happy to uh, have it on. Otherwise, we shall wait for another time. So I uh, had also, I guess you've already heard it, this evil girlfriend podcast. So. All right, because we have a long podcast ahead of us, I hope that uh, you can make it through in one sitting. Uh, In other words, I hope the traffic is really bad or your insomnia is, you know, crippling. So, Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the background uh, of, of this podcast just so you can get a sense of where it is that I'm coming from. I watched a series with Christina uh, that was made in the... I guess it was. It aired in 1999, I think, or 2000, called Freaks and Geeks, which is like a chilling reproduction of high school in 1980. Yes, back before the dawn of time. Close to the Big Bang. Uh, in 1980, I was 14 years old. The lead character is 14. Uh, the lead character has geeky friends. He plays Dungeons and Dragons. He's <laughs> a little on the scrawny side, which is one reason why I started working out, and, and all this kind of stuff. There's just, I mean, <laughs> it's an eerie number of parallels. He comes from a nice, though occasionally bit blind family, and the, the traditional stereotype of the wise children trying to make their way in the world without any particular help from intelligent or experienced adults, that the adults come from another planet, uh, is, uh, is really part of the equation. And it's interesting because this this ex- exploration of high school cliques is, is a staple, right, all the way from, I don't know, Breakfast Club onwards, uh, and it's a staple, and gosh, what's it, the Mallory Towers books that I used to read when I was a kid had the same kind of thing. It's also the same kind of thing in Harry Potter and so on, the sort of group of cliques that is the staple of the high school tribal society, the Lord of the Flies among the lockers. Uh, in this, there's two particular groups that are uh, explored one of the freaks, and those are the people who are just real outsiders and uh, who are rebellious and not particularly into obeying rules um, come from real broken homes uh, almost exclusively and uh, they take drugs and and just you know real outsiders and people who have uh, some pretty stunted interactivity skills, but uh, they sort of cling together and then there 's the geeks and the geeks it should be noted, are distinct from the nerds. The geeks are people who have odd physical attributes but are not marked by particularly high intelligence, right? So there's the nerds who have their own pecking order based on uh, particular abilities in science or math, or it could be I was in more of a writing nerd group, but uh, there's the ner- uh, the geeks who are just sort of physically odd uh, or out of the typical mold, and uh, don't, uh, may, may, uh, generally quite awkward when it comes to sports and so on, but who are not, uh, you know, giant brains sitting atop awkward bodies, right? So they, of average intelligence, it would seem, and uh, of unimposing physical stature, let's just say. So there, there's three of them, right? There's Sam, who's like this 70 year old Jewish grandfather trapped in the body of a 14 year old boy. And there's a Sam, who's like a young and sweet and dewy-eyed young boy. And then there's Bill, who's pretty much a heartbreaking character, who just is a complete uber-geek in terms of it's, he's tall and gangly with these goldfish bowl glasses and a uh, really bad haircut and, and so on. And uh, then, of course, there are you know the, the jocks and the, the cheerleaders, you know, all this sort of standard high school stereotypes or stereotypes within high school movies I found this show to be quite powerful really 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 I got it for like 50 bucks for I guess 18 shows uh, plus a whole bunch of I haven't looked at any of the extras but it, you know it's it, go order it I mean it's just fantastic whether or not you were a teenager in the 80s or whatever it doesn't really matter I mean, the archetypes are the same it was so bizarre. I mean, I'm telling you, it was so bizarre. To see characters and this this long-haired, skinny guy who was the Dungeon Master, who is, like, the same as the guy who would occasionally co-Dungeon Master with me, or who would, we'd sort of alternate at times. And he's pulling out the fiend, fo- uh, the fiend Folio and the Monster Manual and all the D&D books as they were back then. I don't know where the hell they got these. It's 20 years later or whatever, I guess. But, uh, oh, just... Astounding, and the musical references and so on are just spot on. It took forever, of course. It only ran for one season, because it was going up against The Bachelor or some nonsense like that. And there are like a hundred, over a hundred songs in the show, which are pretty specific. They didn't. They they made the show before you would get your standard licensing agreements to include DVD re-releases. since '99 when it was a negotiated, '98, and so someone had to go and get all of the musical references uh, approved and so on. And it was just, a, I mean, a. it's good storytelling. It's not great storytelling. The character's are good, but not great. But it was a real re-evocation of a time period in my life that was uh, not so high, right? Not such a high arc in my existence. But I don't particularly want to talk about, I mean, what do you care about? What my high school, or to guess I was junior high at this time, junior high school experiences were like. What... I think is sort of important is that I literally I swear to God for hours I was like bawling about this one particular character whose name is Bill um, who is I mean really funny looking right I mean not such I mean he has the not completely freaky looking but you know with the glasses and the bad haircuts and the bad clothing and the physical gangliness and the awkwardness and the lack of coordination and so on just a kind of heartbreaking character, and I'll sort of tell you a little bit about what I was thinking about when I was feeling so sad about the fate of this guy and the accidental nature—the accidental nature of these kinds of fates. This kid, uh, let's just take the Martin Starr is the name of the actor, but this this kid was born. Just kind of funny looking, right? And, and with bad eyesight. And I just sort of want you to think for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, I just happen to be born with good eyesight. I need some reading glasses now. If I'm spending a lot of time on the computer, I really need them. But they're, it's more comfortable. They're like the least powerful cheaters you can get. So I've never had any eye problems or, or ear problems or anything like that. And I've always been pretty athletic. But uh, imagine, right? I mean, this is how astoundingly shaped what we call our personalities are, right? I've talked about the social mythology and so on, but let's just talk about the base biology of who it is that we call ourselves and how all that is shaped. Imagine if you'd been born with really bad eyesight—really bad eyesight. Like to the point where you need like serious Coke coke bottle glasses to get any... Like everything is a total blur without your glasses. Of course, people don't really know that until you can speak and say what looks better with glasses on and what looks worse, right? So for the first couple of years of your life, everything is just shapes and blobs, right? your physical coordination is going to be enormously affected cuz somebody throws you a ball all you see is a slightly moving blur right so the connection between your body responses your reflexes and all these kinds of things the connection is really hazy right so you just you're not going to develop those sort of fine motor skill coordinations that occur during the time when your body is first learning to work itself right in relation to the world right you can you don't reach up and scratch your ear and miss because that's all primary sense biofeedback but in terms of interacting with the world you can't uh, you can't uh really do it very well it's not your fault you're not born gawky it's just the bad eyesight right what uh, is it going to mean to your personality development if you can't see people? And I went out when I was in my, I guess, when early 20s, very early 20s, like 21 or so. When I went to the National Theatre School, I lived with a woman for about two years. And she was also somebody who had ba- bad eyesight when she was a kid. And this wasn't discovered until she was like five or six years old, as tends to be the case. And she had real trouble with with eye contact, and she had uh, a very rich inner life, which of course is going to be the case and if you sens- if you put somebody in a sensory deprivation tank, they're going to start having hallucinations. Right, the body needs stimulus, and it will provide its own if it's not provided externally, which is what dreams are about at night. So she had a high degree of emotionality and inability to make or difficulty making eye contact and so on and i felt that this was entirely because of her undiagnosed eyesight problems when she was a kid right how do people respond to you as when you're a kid if you have bad eyesight and somebody throws a ball and you just sort of stand there smiling because it's just a blurry shape and you don't catch the ball and right how are they going to respond to you again assuming that they're not Wise adults and say, "Well, maybe there's a vision issue, let's go sort it out they're going to feel like not positively inclined towards you, not admiring of because they don't they they can't see your inner life, and of course, very few parents bother to explore their children's inner lives, so that richness is not evident to you. What is evident to you is that you can't catch a ball, you trip, uh, you fall, you drop things right because you just you can't connect with your movement and the world very easily, so like half blind right. Worse than blind, in a sense, right? So, how much of your personality is shaped by the mere accident of your eyesight? I mean, isn't that just unbearably tragic in a way? This guy Bill, at one point in the series, he says, You know, it'd be great to be a janitor. I'd get paid more than teachers. No bosses particularly around. And, I mean, he may not have been the brightest kid in the world, but what is it that would make him want to... Like, what is it that would make him end up as a lonely janitor for the rest of his life? Bad fucking eyesight. That he would feel that that is the best that he could do. Or that that would be a viable career goal or aspiration for him to have. I mean, isn't that just heartbreaking? And so along with the poor eyesight, he just happens to be tall and skinny and, you know, he's got bad hair and, and so on. Oh man, I'm telling you, it's just, it is so sad. It is so sad that we are molded by what is beyond our control. I mean, it's, in some ways, it seems like, and I know this is dangerous free will, non-free will territory, but nonetheless, in some ways, it almost feels like we are molded by circumstance the way that a wind, the wind uh, molds a rock, right? I mean, the rock doesn't choose. it just. So, he ends up getting involved. Oh, he's he's, he's uh, attracted to this girl named Cindy, who in the horrible mismatch of that age towers over him by a good, I don't know, half foot or something, who's a cheerleader. And he, she's sort of very flirty and coquettish and, you know, sits with her arms straight and crossed over her uh, front and, and, you know, looks, bats her eyes and grins and smiles and looks and so on, right? So she's very flirty, right? And when you think about that, right, I mean, there's a strong genetic component to, to acne, to some degree there's a pretty strong environmental in terms of your parents being, your family being your environment. In terms of your weight, right, are you are you overweight, right? Well, a lot of that's got to do with how you're fed and, and uh, what your parents, uh, what food is in the house and, and what you're taught about nutrition and all this and that, right? So there's one um, Sam, the Jewish kid's uh, father is a dentist, right? The kids say, are there any you know, are there any? Uh, is there any cereal in the house? And he says, "No, no sugar cereal for sure. That stuff will rot your choppers." Right. So he has better teeth because his father's a dentist or whatever. Right. So says so the accidents of birth and it's the accidents of the house that you're you're born into. Right. So this girl Cindy, who is very, and there were the reason I'm using these is that you can. I mean, these were pretty good archetypes and. You will know kids like this from your own school. And, of course, if you rent, you can't. <laughs> I can't replay for you the, my uh, teenage years um, without the mime group from hell. But um, you can rent or, or buy this, and I really would recommend it. It's really good. doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter when you went to high school. Uh, this is worth a rental or a purchase. You can see these characters, right? So we can at least share this experience in common. But this girl whose, you know, bats her eyes and grins and looks up sideways and looks up through lowered lashes and sits in a coquettish manner and so on, right? She, is she naturally coquettish by nature? Well, no, of course not. This isn't a personality, right? This is what she can achieve based on how she looks, right? I haven't mentioned this sort of more recently, but if you can imagine a pimply overweight girl doing the same coquettish coquettish, grinny kind of flirty stuff right she'd just be laughed at she'd just be laughed at I remember I tried I've never ever been good at this but I had a desire to do this right uh, I tried to be a superior guy, right? A haughty and superior g- g- guy. See, <laughs> I stutter when I even think about it. I tried to be a haughty and superior guy when I was sort of in my, about around this age, 13 or 14 or whatever. And I was lining up to learn skating, right? I mean, skating, oh God, the horror. The horror. Of course, I didn't grow up with skating in England. I come over here. I'm like 12 and Canada. You're supposed to learn how to skate, right? So, rent the skates, go out on the ice, can't get up, can't get up, keep falling over, can't figure out what the hell's going on. Finally realized that, with the help of some hockey kids who came over and knocked me over and yelled things at me, I finally figured out that there are, in fact, skate guards that you're supposed to take off. That actually did help quite a bit in terms of being able to waddle my way across the ice. But I was standing outside uh, uh, the hockey arena, and... Man, some bugs out today. I took my car, so I don't have any bug spray. It's all in Christina's car, so sorry for the odd slap and tickle. But uh, this girl said something uh, to me that was kind of, I don't know, like a, uh, you experience everything as a put-down, or at least I did. I didn't have any secure emotional base from which to absorb these kinds of things, right? So I tried to be haughty and superior, and uh, I said, uh, I have pity on you or something, <laughs> little Lord Fauntleroy, and so on. Right? And of course because I was a little This girl was like a year or two older And like a a head taller and so on And I was a scrawny little kid right She just laughed at me right She turned to her friends and he said Can you believe this kid he said like I have pity on you I mean that's too funny right Which is nature's way of saying That you can't pull it off right (laughs) You, You cannot pull off haughty and superior When you jump on the ice with your skate guards on And are half a head taller than those You were trying to be superior to right So you can't get away with it right now, if I'd have been six foot two with wavy hair and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Then maybe I could have gotten away with it, right? And maybe then that statement would have been, wouldn't have would have been laughed at, but might have had some power or something, right? And that's sort of what I mean when I say that who we are is, and again, I'm talking the absence of philosophy and the absence of wisdom, when we have to judge everything by appearance and, and so on, right? But who we are is... Not just the social mythologies and all the stuff we've talked about before, but who we are is what we can get away with. Right? So, so if you're a cute girl, then you can be coquettish. And that becomes who you are. And if you're not a cute girl, then you can't be coquettish. Because people will just laugh at you. So you don't do that because you don't like to be laughed at and scorned, right? If you're the head of the football team with broad shoulders and wavy hair and whatever, right? Then you can sneer at people. And if you're this gronny 14-year-old blonde kid with a funny accent and bad skating ability, you can't sneer at people, right? So you don't, you veer, you, you veer away from that, you shy away from that. And so we're like water, and we're constantly trying to find a way down the sort of social cliffs to the, using the path of least resistance. What can I get away with? Well, you know, how did I end up funny? Well, people thought my accent was funny, and so I was encouraged to make jokes. And the jokes that I made because of my accent were considered funnier than if I'd had some non faulty Towers accent. Right so part of i mean part of the humor was developed because of my accent right I was not considered to be the wittiest guy in boarding school but in Canada suddenly I was hilarious right so I that works so I sort of work more on that right Now none of this is I don't think terribly stunning but it is incredibly important I think just to sort of think right Who would you be if you if you'd had bad eyesight If you just sort of happen to have bad eyes. Who would you be if you'd been born with a hair lip? Who would you be if you'd had really bad acne when you were a teenager? Who would you be if you were born a foot, if you'd grown to be a foot shorter or a foot taller? Who would you be if you'd had natural coordination, you know, and athletic ability? And this is not even taking into account who you'd be if you'd had different parents a different upbringing. I think that there is an original self, there is a true self which knows all of this, which is why we get anxious under the dominion of the false self. So I think that, of course, we are trying to undo all of these accidents and return to who we are. And that's that's hard, right? Because so much of who we are is what we were able to get away with based on things that we inherited, either familiarly or biologically or culturally or whatever, right? Who are you if you're in Canada, right? Who are you if you're excellent at hockey versus if you're not? You're a different guy. This tyranny of the accidental, this accident as identity is really what we're left with in the absence of wisdom, in the absence of philosophy, in the absence of truth. We're, we're left to imagine that accidents are, is, is identity accidentalism is identity randomness is I not I we, we think I am when really it is I, was, I am allowed I'm allowed to be coquettish because I'm pretty I'm allowed to be funny because I have an accent sorry I almost fell (laughs) I'm allowed what is allowed of course then we grow up and we have to ask the government permission for everything because our very identities are founded on what is accidental and what is allowed and not what is and we're trying to get back to the what is not what is approved, what is allowed, what is encouraged what is discouraged (sighs) so with that framework in place and If you've got a pause, now's the time, because we're going to go into a new section again. I tell you, this is going to be long. With that in place, let me tell you about a scene that just just broke my heart. I think it's in the 14th episode or whatever. And this tall, gangly, gawky, coke-bottle-glasses guy, Bill, is playing basketball. Haverjack! Somebody cries, throws him the ball. And, I mean, he goes down the court like he's got broken broomsticks for legs and tries to do this layup, right, and fails completely. And, of course, the others like, oh, nice going, have a chuck, you know, and they sneer at him and scorn him and so on. That's all a little exaggerated, and maybe it's different in the States. It never was quite that bad in Canada. When I first came to Canada, I was used to a game called Rounders in England, where you get three pitches, and you get to hit the ball, and if you don't like your hit, or you think you can do better, you just wait for the next pitch, right? And I was a pretty good hitter. I played a lot of cricket, and uh, played rounders. So when I came to Canada, I was slightly more successful at baseball than I was at um, hockey, or skating. And so what I did was I cracked uh, it. I was put back into two, two grades. I sort of came to Canada. I originally lived in a town called Whitby with my mother's brother, and uh, I went for half a year to school. I was in grade 8. And then when I came to Toronto, they put me back in grade 6. You know, so sort I of went two years back. And that was partly because my math skills were not up to scratch with my language skills. And because my mother didn't intervene, so I had to... <laughs> it was pretty boring. <laughs> do those two years over again, at least in, in, for most of it. Uh, but uh, So I went out and cracked a pretty good shot of um, uh, of a, uh, a, a baseball and I said, uh, everyone was like, "Run, you limey bastard! Run!" I didn't say "limey bastard," limey, run, right? They said, and, and I was like, "No, no, no! I'll take the next one," right? I didn't realize if, I did make it to first base and so on, which was the only metaphorical use of that term for quite some time. But um, so it wasn't it wasn't so bad from that uh, from that standpoint. But. Uh, this guy is really bad, uh, Bill, in the show. He's really bad at basketball, and he goes down, tries to do the layup, and everyone just scorns him, and so on. And even the gym teacher is like, "Ooh, gee, I wish he'd made that shot, right?" And and the fat kid is like, "Oh, this isn't good, right?" <laughs> as soon as he gets the ball. And I was really, really sad about this, of course, because it is a really heartbreaking scene to see somebody who is, you know, trying to work. I mean, you can see the guy's running around, pulling the levers in his brain. You know, wondering why you know—half the cables are broken and the other half are connected to the wrong things. And he really is a gangly, you know, running running, half-running, half-falling guy, right? You're not sure he's going to be able to get it all together, right? It reminds me of a short video I saw called "The Bush Pilot," where somebody's supposed to be piloting President Bush and so on. So, there's a kind of heartbreaking aspect to this, this scene. At least that was for me. This is around this guy. Who, through no fault of his own, I thought, as I was sort of thinking about it, is just really bad at basketball, and is scorned for, you know, the lack of coordination that results from having bad eyesight as a baby and a, as a toddler. You no. Know, his physical attributes, which are not his responsibility, and so on and so on and so on. Just, I swear to God, just bawling. I couldn't stop. It just seemed such agony, such pain, and... Uh, Like, after a while, I began to get suspicious of my own agony, right? Whenever you feel that much pain, you're carrying too heavy a burden, right? So I had to sort of look at what extra burden was being placed on me, which was uh, more of a mythology rather than reality. So I had to harden my heart against, against this and look more deeply into what might be going on in this basketball scene. Because now that I don't have a job other than this, I have the time to analyze <laughs> uh, dramedies from the 90s. <laughs> but it's important. I, I really think this is going to be very important for you. At least it certainly was for me. I don't think I'll be alone in that. So, there's backstory to these characters, and I think that the backstory is quite accurate in some ways. right? Like, in most art that has any kind of depth, and this is art, it's not, it's, this is not art without depth. What happens is they get the superficialities right, but they get the, the depths wrong, the inevitable conclusions, right? So this guy Bill is the single son of a single mother. I've said it before. I'm sure I'll say it again. This is the most disastrous combination that I've seen in terms of a familial situation i 've never seen a single sign of a single mom who becomes even remotely sexual sexually successful. This is how bachelors are born, and this is how bloodlines end. I have a scene of regarding this in the God of Atheists of course so and his mother is a waitress, and formerly she was an exotic dancer and I knew a guy like this many years ago in my neighborhood. He was uh, an objectivist, so we would chat from time to time. But he was too strange for me. And his mother was a really flirty and physically attractive uh, woman, and he was also physically gawky and undergroomed, to say the least, and you know, thick glasses and so on. He did at least go to the gym, which actually made it stranger in a way. And you know, his mother would be sexually inappropriate in the way that I can imagine a stripper mom is, although this guy's mom wasn't a stripper mom, insofar as she would have her girlfriends over for Victoria's Secrets parties, which we don't even have to go into because I'm sure that nothing more needs to be said. And this guy didn't date, and other people that I've known in this kind of configuration, they don't date, right? They don't date. And there's there's not a lot of possible reasons that you could put out for this. I've sort of tried to settle on one particular theory, which is that uh, the women are destroyed by their own sexuality. And again, we can go into more depth about this another time, but there's no point in making this a 12-hour podcast when I can keep it down to a cozy 11 and a half but the moms are destroyed by their own sexuality and so what they do and what 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 the uh, the, the sons inherit inherit the moms ambivalence towards sexuality right so a woman who overuses her sexuality to to gain attention and to attract men to her doesn't feel like a very attractive person on the inside right right some some rich guy who has to spend all his money on his friends doesn't feel like he's really deserving of friends without spending all the money I mean, we're all aware of this and I don't think this is particularly controversial and so uh, the son is the flip side or the unconscious or the dark side of the mother's hypersexuality and so he uh, has a horror of sexuality because he's, he's feeling what the mom doesn't feel which is the horror at sexuality the, the horror of the fact that she has to use sexuality to gain any kind of attention because she doesn't feel like she's worth much as a personality, as a person, as an individual let alone a woman, let alone a sexual being and so on Right. The sexuality is not icing on the cake. It is the cake. <laughs> it's nothing else, right? So, this Bill fellow grows up undergroomed, under-cared for, and, of course, the, the horrible hypocrisy, in a sense, in this kind of situation. And, again, I'm using this because I've got evidence, actually, outside the realm of, of TV and video. Um the mom knows how to be sexually attractive, right? She's a stripper. She dresses. I mean, the mom in this show is an attractive woman. She dresses nicely, uh, not too slutty. And so she knows, but she doesn't intervene in her son's obvious gorkdom, right? But that, of course, is because he is the flip side of her sexual dysfunction, right? And the overuse of sexuality. And so here we have a young man who is ridiculously under-trained, right? And these boys are all ridiculously under-trained in some pretty important and basic things in life, right? So they have one conversation where one of them says... I'm not giving any spoilers away. It's one conversation where one of them says, you know, what if so-and-so comes to school horny and this guy, girl who's gunning for one of the boys and he says the other one says, no, girls, go, girls don't get horny. Only guys get horny. It's like, oh, all right. Well, I mean, this is just not people who've been raised... Uh, with any attentiveness by, by the mom, right? So, so and again, this is all too murky and Freudian for words, so forgive me, but uh, I think it does work, and if you're patient, I hope to be able to pull this gymnastics <laughs> off, so to speak, just damn slowly, and I'll try to keep tangents to a minimum, really. So, the um, I can't remember, let's call the mom Candy. I don't know what her other name is. Vixen, with three X's, I don't know. Anyway, so Candy the mom, uh, Bill represents her own disgust at sexuality, which is why he is so anti-sexual himself and so undergroomed. right? She can't have a stable relationship with sexuality. It can't be cake plus icing, right? It's either all icing and you get sick of it and then you can't have dessert, right? It's one of the two. So, she kind of fundamentally is using him, right? So, 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 so there's a role here that this guy has to play, right? So she's using him to mirror the despised sections of her personality, right, so to take a i mean sorry, this is so obscure, but i 'll give you another example that might be more clear so like if i if i 'm a jock, right then then I have like a jock dad, and my my kid is and, and I 'm sort of secretly horrified at if I was bad at sports, I'd think like really bad of myself, really badly of myself. And so if I have a son who's bad at sports, then that part of myself gets expression, right? I get to project that horror or the disgust that I would have if I were bad at sports with myself. I place a lot of value on being good at sports. This is how I conceive myself to be of uh, value. So if my kid is bad at sports, then the part of me that I have contempt for if it was bad at sports, and uh, I project onto my kid and attack him and right, so you use the kids as dumping grounds for the rejected and unwanted and unconscious aspects of your own personality. This is something that I inhabit and know very well. I really do inhabit and understand this situation very well because my mother, who was quite obsessed, with her appearance, or at least was until I last saw her eight or so years ago. Yeah, you know, She was very obsessed with her appearance, always interested in looking her best. Uh, this decayed over the years, but only because her, her mind and in sort of sense, sense, common sense decayed. But she was very obsessed with her own appearance, but I got a lot of, you know, here's, here's five bucks, go to Goodwill. And I'm going to, we'll go to Goodwill and I'll pick you out some stuff, right? And this being dressed by the mom situation is. Not particularly good for boys. <laughs> right, and the hypocrisy, of course, is that the moms are all down with physical attractiveness because they use it themselves, but they inflict the flip side of their own fear and distaste of using sexuality to get attention and then finding that that is not satisfying. Right, so there's resentment and all in it. Anyway, so I was this kid, right? And then I went through a bit of a, I guess, uh, ugly duckling to a swan kind of thing, which, again, I also talk about in The God of Atheists, so you don't need to have me go on about it here. But what happens is that the, the the son, as an individual, is actually rejected by his mother, right? this this single son of a single mom, especially when the mom's physically attractive. And I'm sure it happens in other ways with other kids, because even the single sons of a single mom whose moms aren't physically attractive seem to go through the same sort of thing, which I can't really go into here. I'm trying to sort of keep this, believe it or not, relatively short. So, the sons are rejected, put down by their moms, right? Now, if we, and they're used by their moms, exploited for psychological gain, right? In this, Sorry, this is coming up in the book that I've written. So, let's go to the other side, to the jocks. So the jocks are considered to be of value because they have athletic ability, right? So they're they're pushed on by their parents who themselves have issues about personal value outside of accidental things like being good at sports. I mean, no, you have to work at it, but so what? Lots of people work at lots of things, right? I went to theater school for years, didn't emerge as a particularly talented actor. Um, I took singing lessons, didn't emerge as a particularly talented singer, right? Just, you know, there's some base physics and biology that are just sort of required for these things, and and they're also not, you know, I, I can't think of sports as particularly important, right? They're fun, and I enjoy sports, but they're not, uh, they're not really very important, right? In the big scheme of things, right? And five years later, who cares who won the cup, right? Other than sad losers who need to merge with the hurt. But, so, the sons are then praised for something that is accidental, which is their innate skill, uh, and then they apply themselves at it, uh, at this innate skill they have for sports, because they are praised for doing so. Right, again, it's not a personally earned virtue, you're just flowing downhill. What is approved of? Scoring a goal. What is disapproved of? Being bad at sports. Okay, I guess I'll do what's approved of and not do what's disapproved of. So, in this sense... The jocks and the geeks are mirror images of each other, but they're both working on the same principle. The jocks have their identities, their egos, artificially inflated for accidental or inconsequential reasons because it reduces anxiety for their parents, right? So a jock dad feels happier feels less anxious, feels more proud of his son if his son is good at sports. So, I mean, there was a a super nanny I think, once where some guy who was a real sports nut had a kid who was into theater school or into theater sports or whatever and wanted to go to museums, you know, just a... nothing but contempt for the kid, right? It provokes anxiety in him. You have to prove your value, you have to show your value. You can't just be valuable for who you are or, heaven forbid, for wisdom or virtue or kindness or integrity or any of those sorts of things. That's definitely off the table. You've got to be good at putting a ball in a hole in one form or another or a, a goal. So the jocks have their egos artificially inflated, and they can't question that because if they question that, if the jocks question the value of their ability at sports and so on, then what happens is they reveal to themselves relatively quickly, in fact, very quickly... Oh, it's beginning to rain. Okay, let me just cover up the microphone. Move a little closer here. I think we can make it one more time. So the jocks have their egos artificially inflated. They can't question that. Because then they realize that they're being exploited by their parents and that they're not being highly regarded... For anything other than accidental qualities, right? So that's not something that they can really do, right? So they seek to maintain this artificially inflated sense of importance or value. They must seek to maintain it, otherwise the corruption of their parents becomes evidence. Becomes evident. Right? And this is why they have to continually maintain with bullying, with putting down the geeks, with pushing them into lockers and so on, right? they have to maintain it because the alternative is realizing that, by heavens, they're not worth as much as they think that they're worth, and they're only having it pumped up for the sake of their parents' egos, and that they're not loved for who they are, and that they've been given entirely the wrong standards of value, blah, 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 right? I think we all get this in general. And we're aware of this, I think, when we think about the jocks, right? Now, here's what I worked on, though, for a couple of days, and I think it I think it makes sense. Let me know what you think. In the same way as the jocks need to maintain their artificially high egos in order to avoid the knowledge of their parents' exploitation and corruption, exploitation of them and corruption of their relationship, in order to avoid the knowledge that they are mere ego props for for their parents' vanities and insecurities, in the same way that the jocks need to artificially maintain their upstanding, the geeks need to artificially maintain their downstanding. Because the ego of the jocks is artificially inflated by exploitive and corrupt parents. The egos of the geeks are artificially pushed down crushed because they are rejected by their parents and so the the jocks need to keep that lead balloon up in the air and so they're constantly climbing on people to keep it up there but the geeks need to keep their helium balloon underwater so they're constantly grabbing everyone and saying hold this and push this down right? because otherwise they reach like, if, if if the if the jocks fall, they're going to be attacked, right? And then they're going to realize that they're not loved for who they are, but rather for the show they can put on on the sports field. If the geeks rise, then they will meet the resistance of their parents, right? Who want to keep them down. Or, in this case, the single mom, right? Who wants to keep her kid infantilized who wants the kid to hold all the terror and horror she has in the face of her own sexuality and all these kinds of things, right? If the jock says, Dad, I want to be loved for who I am and not because of my sports ability, if he keeps that up, he's fundamentally going to get the answer, no. Damn it, you're here to serve my needs. You go out there and you win so I can feel proud as a father right, it's my needs don't you dare fail because that makes me feel like shit you're there to manage my feelings in the same way if the geek tries to rise he's going to meet the rejection and the scorn and the contempt of his mother or father or both right? because they need to keep him down for their own ego gratification to reduce their anxiety, right? Because they're probably people who are not successes themselves in life, so they need to cripple their kids so that their kids don't make them feel like losers, and right? So you have to... So when you're a geek and you're a kid in this kind of situation where your parents are keeping you down and pushing you down and scorning all chances that you could have to rise or be more successful or whatever, when they're not challenging you and and they don't love you for who you are and so on, when you're just um, dumping ground and management technique for your parents' anxiety and so on, then we all understand how the artificial ego of the jocks has to stay high, but it's harder to see how the artificially low egos of the geeks needs to stay low. Right? So, in one of the episodes, again, no spoilers, I promise, in one of the episodes, Bill, the gangly guy, he's frustrated because he's continually put in like deep, deep outfield. I know the feeling. And he says, well, how am I supposed to get better if they don't give me a chance? How am I supposed to get get better if they don't give me the chance to play? Right? But But that's not true. Right? That's not true. I mean... I mean, when I first came to Canada, I couldn't skate. How could I? Never tried, never did it, never rollerbladed, never roller-skated or anything like that. So what did I do? Well, I went and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Now, of course, nobody ever wanted me on uh, a hockey team, but at least I could get around the ice and, you know, do a couple of cool moves and skate backwards and so on, right? Right, so, like, there's nothing stopping this Bill kid if if he finds it humiliating that he lacks coordination, to work as hard as he can to retrain himself. Now, maybe it's possible, maybe it's not, but we never saw him try. Right, so, so here's the other situation, right? In episode 14, somebody passes him a basketball and he turns and does that banging stilt, broken leg jaunt down. The basketball court, and there's nobody around him, right? There's nobody around him. And everyone is like, oh, God, this can't be good. And they're right, but it's not accidental. There's nobody around him. Nobody's chasing him. So what he could conceivably do is he could stop, take aim, gently lob the ball into the net. And maybe it would take two tries, right? But he would stop and try and really put the ball in. But instead, he tries to do this not wildly complicated, but not particularly easy layup, which he can't do. Right. So this is not accidental. He actually is participating in his own humiliation. Takes the ball, doesn't pass it to someone, goes and tries to do the layup and fails. And then people are like, right on cue, right, right as he needs them to, to avoid the actual humiliation that he has experienced at the hands of his mom, the actual rejection. Right? He has to normalize it right that which we don't accept we repeat that which we the pain that we don't go through we must inflict on ourselves and on others so if you look into this right the desire to keep our egos within uh, let me put it me try this another way our need to keep our egos in the place our parents put it in order to avoid the realization or the feeling that we have been exploited by corrupt people and that they've lied to us about loving us and it's actually only been manipulating us for their own comfort and, and to reduce their own anxiety and increase their own pleasure in shallow and horrible ways. Right, In order to avoid that, we have to keep our egos where our parents put them. If that's artificially high, then we have to be artificially high and we have to bully. If it's artificially low, then we have to keep them artificially low by continually rehumiliating ourselves. Oh man, I can tell you, oh, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you. When I went through this phase, right? Again, I talked about in so you don't need to have more of it here. I got a haircut and got good clothes and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Facial cleansers. Deodorants, all the good things. And I went from, like, geek to, I don't know, dare I say stud? Probably, yeah, I guess so. Uh, in the space of, like, a week, right? I showed up and everyone thought I was the new kid. Like, I literally did have that kind of transformation when nobody recognized me. And it changed everything, right? This is, this is how you realize these things, right? This is why I say in Togoa that Gordon learned how to get to the marrow of things by realizing how important externalities are, right? You get to depth by realizing the importance of shallowness. Sorry, don't mean to be too Buddhist on you. <laughs> shallowness is the sound of one deep hand clapping. And once you realize that, That was it for me and my mom, right? I mean, for that phase. uh, Right? Once you get how easy it is to get a decent haircut and some decent clothes, and they weren't expensive. Once you really get how easy that is. And once you realize that your mom knows all about it because she does it for herself. Right? It was not... 6 months I think after this phase that we kicked my mom out. It's agony to realize the boxes that people put you in for their own damn needs. It's not the agony is the agony is not that they put you in those boxes. Right? If my mom said, "Look, I'm not going to buy you any new clothes because it makes me anxious." Right? I'm not going to I'm going to give you a freaking bowl cut with pinking shears, believe it or not. I had a little frickin' Italian deli awning on my forehead. It's not like I got a long time to play with my hair, but the little time that I got was not good. My mother shaved her head when we were younger because she felt it would make her hair grow thicker. We were called ridiculed as skinheads, and then I got these goddamn pinking shears bowl cuts, and then I went bald. (laughs) Me and hair. Let's not get started. So once you realize just how used you've been and how lied to you've been in these areas. And this is as true for the jocks as it is for the geeks. And this is not, you know, oh, all sympathy for the jocks and none for the geeks, right? But it's just important to understand is when you think about the mythologies that are put forward, and think of the Michael Moore films, and think of the poor, right? Well, I would say that nine times out of ten, if not 99 times out of 100, the poor are staying where their egos were allowed to be. Right? Nobody tears down a poor person like other poor people. Nobody tears down a poor person trying to raise himself than other poor people who resent it. And this, of course, goes all the way back to the parent, right? So, if you understand that what goes on in high school is a complicated ecosystem of leveling, of, of, of keeping people in the places that they themselves need to stay in, that they themselves need to stay in, in order to avoid understanding how much they've been exploited by the parents, I think it helps us to feel a little bit less of the pitying agony that certain types of people inflict on us through their own incompetence, right? And their desired for and willed incompetence, their refusal to practice, and their continuance of being hurt by the jocks, right? I mean, the show does show how the jocks feel humiliated in math class the same way that the nerds feel humiliated in gym class. So I hope that this helps understand that it's really important to look at your own ego and self-esteem and say, what was allowed for me when I was younger? And to what degree am I just maintaining all of that now in one degree or another? Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to your donations. I will talk to you soon.